You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. I invite you now to open Holy Scripture and turn with me to the Gospel according to John to chapter 14. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father? And that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Counselor, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not speak with you much longer, but the prince, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me. 
But the world must learn that I love the Father and that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. This afternoon, the text for the sermon is also found in John chapter 14. Let's read it a second time, beginning at verse 12. Where Christ says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as you well know, one of the basic and most important disciplines of the Christian life is prayer to God in heaven as our Father. We know that going to God in prayer is good because it is something God commands us to do. God commands us to pray daily. He tells us to pray persistently. He instructs us to immerse our entire lives in prayer to him as our Father in heaven. Therefore, prayer ought to be not only our duty, but it also ought to be our great delight. Nothing ought to be be more meaningful and more beautiful to us than to be allowed to draw near to our Father in heaven, to, to simply go to him as his children and to know that he, our God, is pleased to receive us and will respond to every word we bring to him. Now, to encourage us in prayer, the Lord also includes in Scripture many beautiful promises about prayer, promises that our Father in heaven will for sure hear us when we pray and that he will for sure respond to us. Nowhere are these promises spoken so clearly and so forcefully as by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And you may recall that the last time I was in your pulpit a few months ago, we looked at Luke 11, and in Luke 11 we find one of those remarkable passages full of promises about prayer. In verse 9, the Lord Jesus says of Luke 11, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds, and to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Well, also in our text of this afternoon, we find our Lord Jesus Christ giving us a most remarkable promise about prayer. He says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. Verse 14. Now the question is, how do we respond to promises such as these when we find them in the Bible? Do we just take those promises at face value? Or could it be that we somehow immediately try to find intellectual ways of explaining them away. We hear the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ saying to us, you may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. And perhaps the first word that comes into our mind is the word but. Yes, this is the promise, but this is the qualification or this is the explanation and so forth. The feeling we have when we read a promise like the one in John 14, verse 14, is that it says something amazing, but it it must mean something else. It must mean something else because, after all, we've all had the experience, haven't we, of going to God with something important to us, something of great concern to us, something of tremendous personal or familial or congregational significance, 
We've laid it before the Lord. We've asked God to do something specific. But God didn't. God did not respond in the way we had hoped, in the way we had expected, in the way we had desired him to do. And so we come back to the Bible and we read John 14, verse 14, and we say, that's a beautiful word, but it can't possibly mean what it says. It can't possibly be taken at face value, can it? Well, this afternoon, let us find out. And let us be careful to not read the Bible and to not read the promises of God through our own experiences as a kind of a lens through which we perceive everything. But let us strive to let God speak to us on his own terms. And when God speak to, speaks to us on his own terms, that means we have to always let the word of Scripture be taken in its context. And what we find from the context of John 14, verse 14, with its amazing prayer promises, that the Lord Jesus Christ is connecting this prayer promise to the work which he is laying upon his disciples. He's telling them that they have a great work to do in this world, not for themselves, but for him, their, their king, their savior. And it's in the context of doing that work for the king that the king makes this beautiful promise You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. And so our theme this afternoon is doing Christ's work with confidence. And we will pay attention to two major points. First of all, the church is called to do the work of her ascended Lord. And secondly, the church can count on the faithful help of her ascended Lord. First, then, the church is indeed called to do the work of her ascended Lord. Well, as we think about this passage, Congregation of Our Lord Jesus Christ, we realize, of course, that it is part of a very lengthy address of the Lord Jesus Christ, a lengthy address to his disciples, an address which encompasses not only chapter 14, but also 15 and 16. This address was delivered by the Lord Jesus Christ to his disciples on the very night on which he was betrayed and later arrested. And for this reason... These, these chapters of John are most frequently referred to as the farewell address of our Lord. And indeed, if you look at the beginning of chapter 14, that's really the tone. The Lord Jesus Christ announces to his disciples something that he talked to them about before, but now the time has come very near. He announces that he's going away. He's about to leave his disciples. And soon he will be put to death on a cross for the sins of the world. And then on the third day, he will rise from the dead. And then 40 days later, he will ascend into heaven. So that physically, he won't any longer be in the world. This means some pretty drastic things. It means the Lord Jesus Christ won't be going about Judea anymore, preaching the gospel. He won't be visiting Galilee anymore, preaching in the towns and villages of Israel. He won't be there anymore to raise people from the dead. He won't be healing the sick. He won't be telling the lame to stand up. He won't be touching the eyes of the blind and opening the ears of the deaf. He won't be multiplying bread to feed thousands, and he won't be quiet in any storms on the sea. The drastic change is coming. I am going away, says the Lord Jesus. I won't be with you as I am with you today. Well, the impact of those words of the Lord Jesus to his disciples was obviously quite dramatic. They were naturally troubled by what they were hearing from the Lord Jesus. They were troubled, obviously, because they were going to miss him personally. After all, they left everything to follow Jesus. 
and they had been following him for a long time, their lives were completely intertwined with the life of their master. So obviously they're going to miss him if he's going away. And they're probably thinking about how in the world life will ever go on without the Lord Jesus present among them. But likely the troubled mind which they experienced was, was not really so much because of their, their personal feelings, because they're personally going to miss Jesus, but they're troubled because they had come to know Jesus in a very specific way, not only as their master whom they were following, but as the Christ, which means the King or the Lord of Israel, or the Lord of the world. They had come to confess Jesus as the son of David, the long-awaited son of David, the one through whose rule God would bring about the long-awaited kingdom of justice and peace. Jesus was the one, they believed, who would bring the new world order, if I may use that term, the new world order of God. When God was set to right all the wrongs of the world, and when God would establish his justice, his peace, his kingdom of grace. This is what the disciples believed about Jesus. And now Jesus says he's going away, and the job isn't done, clearly, because the kingdom isn't established yet. Where was Jesus going? And if he wins, what would come of the kingdom of God? And what would happen to them as followers of the king? Was everything going to fall apart just as it had before with other would-be messiahs that had arisen from time to time among the people of God? Was Jesus going to be, after all, just another dead end? Another source of disillusionment and frustration and bitterness? And would life, after all, just go on as it always had? Israel in bondage to sin. Israel in bondage to death. Israel in bondage to all the tyranny of the devil. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ knows what the disciples are thinking. So on this last evening of his earthly life, of being in our flesh among us, he takes the time to speak to his disciples, to address them very pointedly and directly, to comfort them and encourage them, and to set his departure in a broader context. And the first thing he tells them is that their parting is only going to be temporary. I am going away, says the Lord Jesus Christ, but even more importantly, I'm coming back too. And when I come back, I will take you, my disciples, to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That's the first part of Christ's word of comfort. And so the disciples could take heart. They could learn from this word of Jesus that Whatever is going to happen, their future personally is secure. Jesus is committing to them. He's saying, going away, it's all kind of mysterious and you can't understand it now, but take heart, I'm coming back and your future is secure. You will be with me again, even as you are with me today. So their future is secure, but that still left the question, what about the present or what about the work which the disciples had been doing? And what about the work which the Lord Jesus had been doing? What about their calling as disciples? Because the Lord had already called them. The Lord had already commissioned them as his apostles. The Lord had already given them the mission of going to the world. If Jesus leaves, how would this all continue? What would come of that mission? 
Well, verse 12 gives us the answer where Christ says, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. He will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Now, there's an awful lot packed into that verse, verse 12. First, there's the assurance that those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will do his works. The works of Jesus will continue. Even though he's physically absent, they will continue. His works will continue through the witness of those who believe in him. Disciples will preach. The message of the kingdom will go out. The good news of God's grace will be announced. And there will be fruit upon that work. But Jesus has something more to say than simply that the work will continue. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who has faith in me will do what I have been doing. Moreover, he will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. That's an amazing statement. How could anyone do greater works than Jesus? How could anyone cast out more demons? How could anyone heal more sick people? How could anyone more authoritatively raise the dead? And and perhaps most of all, how could anyone preach more powerfully, more authoritatively, more fruitfully than the Lord Jesus did? It's an amazing statement, but also mysterious. Well, we can start to make sense of what the Lord Jesus Christ means when we pay attention to the very last part of verse 12, where he gives the explanation. He says he will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Jesus is going to the Father and somehow that makes all the difference. Somehow that will allow his disciples to to not only continue his works, but to do even greater works than he did. Think about what it meant that Jesus went to the Father. He ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. This means that he, he went to the Father victoriously. He went as one in a great procession of victory. Victorious over sin. Victorious over the devil and all the, the hosts of darkness. Victorious over the fear and power of death. Victorious over all the things that were threatening and breaking down the peace and good order of God's creation. And so the phrase, going to the Father, as we find it at the end of verse 12, means that Jesus will soon be glorified. He will be exalted. He will be majestic. He will be worshipped by all the hosts of heaven. Just think of what had happened on the Mount of Transfiguration on one, one occasion. The disciples had for a little while caught a glimpse of the true essential glory of the Son of God. It had overwhelmed them. They had never experienced anything like that. But it was only a glimpse. Well, when Jesus says, I'm going to the Father, this means that that little glimpse of glory on the Mount of Transfiguration is now going to become the permanent reality. The Son of God will be exalted. He will be enthroned in majesty. And he will be entrusted by his Father with all authority over not only Israel, but all the nations of this world. Think of the difference that will make for the work of the disciples and for the work of the church. For three years, these disciples had been following the Lord Jesus Christ, but 
The Lord Jesus Christ had been a savior in a state of humiliation. They had been with a lowly savior, a savior who had come in the form of a servant, a savior who, who seemingly was powerless in many situations, a savior who moreover kept telling them to their consternation that this wasn't going to end in glory, but it was going to end on a cross, something which they could not fathom nor accept. But now this Savior, with whom they had been in a state of humiliation and weakness, this Savior will be exalted. He will be exalted in heavenly majesty, and from now on they will be disciples, not of an about-to-be-crucified Son of God, but they will be disciples of the Most High, glorified Jesus. Ambassadors of a conquering Lord, a Lord who had already been victorious over sin and Satan and death. I think now you can see what Christ means by greater works. The church will do greater works than the Lord Jesus himself did because the church will be able to work on the foundation of Christ's finished work and with all the authority of his position as the ascended Son of God behind them. And we see that indeed in the rest of the book of the books of the New Testament. If we look at the beginning of the book of Acts, for example, we find there the familiar words of the writer of the book of Acts. He says in his address, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Well, that book, as you know, is the gospel according to Luke, because Luke is the author of both Luke and Acts. So when Luke thinks about the first book he wrote, what, which we call the Gospel of Luke, he's, he says, this is the book which tells about what Jesus began to do and to teach. And the implication, therefore, is that this, this second book, which he's now written, which we call Acts, is the book in which he's going to tell about what Jesus continues to do and to teach. And so it's all right to refer to this book as the book of Acts, as long as we understand that the Acts to which it refers are not the acts of the apostles in the first place, but these are the acts of the risen and glorified Lord Jesus Christ, which he accomplishes through his disciples and through the church which follows them. And when you read the book of Acts, you can see indeed that the works of Jesus, which he does to the church, following his ascension, are indeed greater than the works which he did before his ascension. For starters, the work of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts is much broader geographically. If you think about it, the whole, the whole New Testament gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Lord Jesus Christ is, is restricted, if you will, to a very small piece of the world's territory, small little strip of land on the east coast of the Mediterranean, smaller than Vancouver Island by far. That's where Jesus lived. That's where he worked. That's where he ministered, a very small place. And also in terms of its impact, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ during his earthly phase, his phase of humiliation, was, was minimal. When Christ died and ascended into heaven, how many people were taking him seriously? Well, a lot less people than are here this afternoon. There were only 120 people who were taking Jesus seriously at that time. Only 120 people who, who somehow had come to see him as the hope of the world. 
That's not a lot of people. Didn't have a lot of followers. But now contrast that with what happens as you read through the book of Acts. See how the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to Macedonia to Greece to Rome, even to Spain and to North Africa. You see it expanding in ever-growing circles. And then think about the numbers. Not just 120, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ as Lord, came to see him as the hope of the world, came to see him as the king of the nations, as the one through whom God was establishing his new world order of justice and peace, the one through whom God was setting to right all the wrongs which had come because of sin. Everywhere in the world, from east to west, from north to south, by the end of the book of Acts, people from many different races and cultures were hearing about the atoning sacrifice and about the glorious exaltation of King Jesus, and they were learning to serve him as their Lord. That's the great miracle that unfolds in the book of Acts. And that's the great miracle that's continuing to unfold in the world today. That's a great miracle in which you as a Christian congregation corporately and in which you as Christian believers individually may continue to be involved. This work of the spreading of the good news, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God. Worship, service, mission, these are the tasks to which the king calls us. We've been conscripted for these tasks. We've been given a project, and that project is not small. It is very large. It's a project that demands a great deal from us. In fact, it demands everything from us. And sometimes it's it's a project, this project which the Lord has laid on us, that's very complicated. There are many obstacles. There's a lot of resistance. But we can do this work of the ascended Lord Jesus Christ with the assurance that he himself personally, through his word and by his spirit, is working in us and through us. And we may know beyond any shadow of a doubt that as we put our trust in him and and embrace the work that he has laid upon us, this work will be fruitful. Through us, Christ will advance his kingdom. We, his people, will do great works Not because we are great, but because we have a great Lord who is pleased to work through us who believe in his name. And so we've seen how the church is called to do the work of her ascended Lord, and we've begun to also consider how the church can count on the faithful help of her ascended Lord. For verses 13 and 14 do indeed give us a very reassuring commitment from the Lord Jesus Christ. He tells us here that he will without fail answer the prayers of his disciples. Let's read it again. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Those are wonderful promises, aren't they, congregation of our Lord? But again, as I asked in my opening remarks this afternoon, can we really take them at face value? Can we just bring anything to the Lord Jesus Christ and be sure that he will give it? 
Well, the meaning of Christ's promise becomes clear when we focus on the words in my name, as we find them in both verse 13 and verse 14. Whatever you ask in my name, you may ask me for anything in my name. That's a familiar expression to us because we use the variation on that expression just about at the end of every prayer, don't we? And that's a good Christian practice to end our prayers with something like, we, we ask this all of you, we lay this all before you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what we typically mean by that is, Father in heaven, we realize that we don't deserve anything from you, but we, we make bold to ask you and we have confidence to ask you because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But the interesting thing is that here in John 14 and verses 13 and 14, the expression in my name doesn't mean what we usually make it to mean at the end of our prayers. To pray in the name of Jesus as these verses speak about it means something like this. It means, Father in heaven, hear our prayer and answer us not because of who we are, but because we are asking as the representatives and as the servants of the Lord Jesus. To ask in the name of Jesus means to ask as people, in other words, who are doing his work. And to see that this is the right interpretation of that expression, in my name, we can remember how elsewhere in the Gospel of John, the Lord Jesus speaks about himself as coming in the name of his Father. For example, in John 5, in verse 43, the Lord Jesus says, I have come to you in my Father's name. And that's something Christ says more often in his gospel. I have come to you in my Father's name. And then if you go to chapter 10, as another example, the Lord Jesus says, The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me. That's verse 25 of John 10. This kind of language in which the Lord Jesus talks about doing things and saying things in the name of his Father means that he doesn't do it in his own authority. He didn't come into the world to do his own thing, so to speak. He didn't come into the world to say his own peace and to accomplish his own goals. No, in the Gospel of John particularly, it becomes so abundantly clear that the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to do the will of his Father. He came into the world as one sent by the Father He came into the world as one representing the Father, and he came into the world to do the work of the Father. If you read the Gospel of John, it becomes ever so clear that in the life of the Son of God, there is no independence. There's no independent activity in his life. But everything he does, he does as one sent by the Father. He does the work of his Father as his Father's servant. And the whole purpose of his life is that the Father would be glorified through him. Well, just as Christ was sent by the Father and does his work in the name of the Father, so he sends his church. And he calls his church to do its work in his name. As as people, as congregations and individuals sent by him. And so when you pray in the name of Jesus in the context of John 14, verses 13 and 14, this means simply that we are going to God, we're bringing before God the needs we have in the course of the work we are doing as his servants, as disciples of Jesus, as part of the church of Jesus Christ. 
We don't go to the Lord Jesus Christ with just anything. But we go to the Lord Jesus Christ as those who love him, who are devoted to his cause, who are living members of his church. We go to the Lord Jesus with our prayers as those who have renounced radically self-interest. We're not in this world for ourselves. And we don't bring things to the Father in heaven just for ourselves. No, we go to the Father in heaven as people who have radically renounced self-interest and who have instead one great motivation that Jesus Christ would be glorified, and through him, also the Father who sent him. And in that framework, people of God, I may say to you that you can count on your Savior to provide us with everything we need for the work he has entrusted to us. As if the Lord Jesus Christ will call us to do this great work, this great kingdom work, and then leave us to fend for ourselves in terms of the resources we need and the strength we need and the gifts we need. No, he will most certainly not leave us alone in the work he has given us to do as Christians, but he will provide us in answer to our prayers with everything we need for our particular calling as Christians, whatever that calling might be that we have as Christians. And if we look past our text few verses, we can see how the Lord will answer our prayers. Look at verse 15 and 16. If you love me, you will obey what I command, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. And then again in verse 26. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. And then again, chapter 15, verse 26. When the Counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. And then again in verse six, chapter 16, verse 12, or verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and so forth. So that's another feature of this farewell address of the Lord Jesus Christ that is saturated with with references to the promised Holy Spirit. And why is that so? Well, because the Holy Spirit is the answer of the Lord Jesus Christ to the prayers of his church. It's through the Spirit that we are empowered to do the work which Christ has laid upon us. What does God give through the Spirit? Well, God gives wisdom, doesn't he? Wisdom through the Spirit. God gives courage, doesn't he, through the Spirit. It's a boldness that comes from the Spirit. And God gives energy and power through the Spirit, doesn't he, and perseverance. And God provides comfort and and encouragement through the Spirit. And God makes it possible through the Spirit for us to live holy and godly lives. And so we might say that in one way or the other, the Holy Spirit is the answer to all the prayers we ever bring before the throne of God. Every prayer that we bring to the Lord Jesus in relation to the work we have been given to do for him is answered by a measure of the Spirit being bestowed upon us. And so the promises of this passage, John 14, verses 13 and 14, are indeed amazing. And they are amazing. They don't just look amazing, they are amazing. We shouldn't limit them in any way by our preconceptions. But the thing that needs to be said this afternoon is, These promises cannot be claimed by just anyone. 
These promises can be claimed only by those who have, as I mentioned earlier, renounced radically all self-interests. And in the words of the catechism, understand that their lives are not their own, but belong to another, even to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you understand that your life is not your own, and that your daily business is not just about advancing yourself and securing yourself and and fulfilling your own dreams and aspirations, but when you understand that every moment of your life is connected to this living for the Lord Jesus Christ, doing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, when your whole life is nothing less than a mission for the Lord Jesus Christ, then you may count on the Lord Jesus Christ to provide you with all that you need for the work which he has entrusted to you. And so let it be a matter of assurance for us that we can ask Christ Jesus to be glorified through our lives, and he will be glorified. We can ask Christ Jesus to be glorified through our relationships, and he will be glorified. We can ask Christ Jesus to be glorified through our marriages and our families, and he will be glorified. We can ask Christ Jesus to be glorified through the education we provide for our children, and he will be glorified. We can ask that Christ Jesus would be glorified through our jobs and through the witness we bring to our neighbors on the street, and he will be glorified. We can ask that Christ Jesus would be glorified in the unity and the oneness of the congregation, and he will be glorified in that manner too. You see, when we pray, not out of self-interest, but when we pray because of our great love for the Lord Jesus Christ and because of the great conviction that he has laid upon us a sacred task, then we may indeed pray with complete confidence that whatever we need, and that's broad, whatever we need for the work he has entrusted to us, we will receive it. He guarantees it. He guarantees that we, his people, will do greater works than he did. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.